All right, let's look at Mark chapter 14 as we um, consider or, or as we enter into Holy Week, um, the time that we anticipate and think through and focus upon the last week of Jesus' life on this uh, earth or before the cross at least, before his resurrection. And, um, and so let's look now at Mark chapter 14 and... We'll begin reading in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Uh, Peter said to them, and then Peter responded, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my my betrayers at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Lord Jesus, as the disciples, so us. We sin, we resolve to do better, we sin again, we resolve to do better, we sin again. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you would come by your Spirit And you would do what only you can do, and that is give us hearts that were willing to receive the truth of the gospel. Would you, like a surgeon, so expose the cancer within us 
Would you so allow us to see what is holding back from loving you and loving our neighbor? Would you so expose those things where shame and pride have swallowed us up and paralyzed us so that we might allow your cross to grow so large in our hearts and minds that Jesus become everything to us in this place so that we might live for your glory and we might live for the good of those around us, sacrificing and selflessly selflessly giving ourselves away. Oh God, we need your understanding. I need your understanding, Father. I need your wisdom and I need the comfort of your cross to even say the things I will say this morning. So come and work among us for your glory. We pray. Amen. We're going to get real this morning. Um, for the last uh, few weeks, uh, not a couple of months now, I have been going to counseling to deal with some sin in my life that's really paralyzed me and and, um, and done some damage in my relationship, primarily with Rachel. And uh, I, I want to let you in on it this morning. Um. As I've told you guys many times before, when uh, we were married, uh, Rachel was already pregnant uh, with our child. And when we found out that she was pregnant, I, we went to someone that we trusted implicitly and, and put our, our need before them and, and really trusted them to lead us through this. And I'm not confessing so much, I don't want the light to shine on the advice we were given, but... Uh, but the advice that we were given looking back was not great. Uh, what we heard was this. If you're going to get married, which we were determined we were, we wanted to marry one another, then you need to do it within like two weeks. That's what we were told. Because, so as, and this is a quote, to minimize Rachel's shame. In other words, if we didn't get married immediately, that uh, people might know that she was pregnant outside of wedlock and it would make her feel shameful. Um, and then we were told that we needed to change our wedding date, our anniversary, um, and tell our children that it, instead of November, it was August that we were married, so that our children would never know the circumstances under which we got married. And so for 19 years, that's what we did. Um, and in the midst of all of that, unbeknownst to me, what I heard and what Rachel heard was uh, something very clear, and that is what you guys have done is shameful, and you are shameful. And, and it's and, and something in me, because I, I'm hearing this, and, and no elders in the church, and no, the church didn't deal with it, nobody said a word about it, it just kind of, here we are, she's pregnant, we're married, Everybody knows, <laughs> you know, the circumstances. It just kind of is happening. There, there's no opportunity for confession. There's no opportunity, therefore, for restoration. And so shame dominated our lives. And really something in us clicked, and that is we are not worthy. Um, you know, it, it, basically we are not worthy. 
And something in me that has really just been exposed the last few weeks um, clicked, and I realized at that point that our job description was to never feel shameful again. Now, that's tricky because we're still sinners. We didn't just commit one sin in our lives. Uh, Our sin is ongoing. And so when Rachel would point something out in my life, and I'm not exposing her sin, I'm saying this happens in marriage because you sin against one another, but when she would say something in public or that was completely appropriate, but I felt exposed, I would give her a dirty look. I would roll my eyes trying to, to, to control her. And this has gone on for 31 years. Um, and, and what that's communicated to her is you don't measure up, you're not worthy, and, and I have repented and I have apologized and I've tried to battle this sin. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago that we were sitting and I was sitting in my counselor's office and he asked me one question that the light, it, this epiphany, it, it was like freedom. And he helped me to see that in essence this is not about Rachel, this is about about me doing image management because I determined 31 years ago, which is when we were married, that I was not going to be exposed as a shameful person again. And so automatically, it's it's almost like, you know, it's just how I respond. And, you know, it's hurt her tremendously. Um, since that time, we're seeing tremendous progress, and I thank Jesus, <laughs> and, and I thank my wife for being patient with me, and this is a sidebar, uh, dear friends, that's what faithful marriage looks like. It's sticking with your spouse when they don't see their sin for 31 years. Um, sidebar. All right. Why am I telling you this? Believe me, I don't like doing it. Um, I would love just to preach about the doctrine of the atonement and the cross and it be hypothetical and, we, and theological. And But here's why I'm doing this. It's because Jesus comes to his disciples in the last hours of his life before his death on the cross. And what does he take that time to do? He takes that time to convince them that sin is not hypothetical. That they are sinners. He says, you're going to deny me. And they all emphatically deny it. Oh, no, no, not me. Not me. And yet, how does our, our text end this morning in verse 50? And they all left him and fled. Wow. So what is Jesus getting at? He's getting at this. Sin is real, and it's a real present reality for every person in this room, and most of us are blind to it. We're all blind to some sin, and even though I've had an epiphany of this one sin in my life that's dominated me, there are plenty of others. And that, dear friends, is why Jesus had to die. Sin is not hypothetical, but there is real power in the cross of Jesus Christ to do the hard work of repentance. Do you want change in your life? I do. That cross is the power for change. 
But how is it the power for change? Let's look at it. Number one, change comes when we admit that we are the reason that Jesus had to die. Change begins to come when you are, when your sin is exposed to you and you say, I am the man. That's the, that's the beginning. I, I met with a young man recently who had called me and said, man, I want to meet with you. All right. And we met and he confessed sin to me. And in the process of confessing sin, I've been in this situation numerous times. I've, I've heard confessions of adultery, of uh, sexual addictions and porn addictions and alcohol addictions and um, out-of-wedlock pregnancies and you name it. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And every time someone meets with me, I see it's almost like this these, you know, 50-pound weights on their shoulders. And I could see it. Man, they've been, you know, they haven't been sleeping. They didn't even want to come and tell me. And while they're telling me, it's like, you know, somebody has just stuck a knife in them and they're doing surgery on them uh, with no anesthesia. And this person confesses his sin to me. And in each and every time, something in me just wants to rejoice. I know it's not appropriate, and I've never done it. But I want to do it. Because that is the first step for healing. It's like an alcoholic who for the first time goes to an AA meeting and he's not silent, but he says, Hello guys, my name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic. Do you know that that is a leap in progress? Just to have the, for your flesh to be humbled to the point that you stand and you say, I am the man and I'm no better than anybody in this room. Friends, that takes the very spirit of God to bring us to that point. And the problem with us, the problem with the church, is that we are eaten up with the cancer of sin and we're not willing to admit it. And here's what Christian community looks like so often. It, it, it looks like this. I was thinking of a good illustration this week, and I hope this is a good one. It's like if St. Jude, all of a sudden, if all the patients at St. Jude, and we know what St. Jude does, they deal with childhood cancer. It's like if St. Jude and, and the patients in St. Jude started denying that they had cancer. And, and so you have this whole hospital of people that have this horrible disease, but they're walking around and, and, and they're getting, they're tired, their stomachs are killing them, they're bending over, they're getting massive headaches, migraine headaches, and, and, and but the whole time they're saying, oh, I'm okay, I, I'm okay, I just have a little headache, I, I'm okay, they're passing out, and some are dying, but, but everybody's okay. Dear friends, nobody's okay at St. Jude. And nobody's okay in the church. And yet sin is so deceptive. Sin is so real that it creates this web in us that, that, that we don't feel like we, we can really admit it and we don't even want to see it in our lives. It's why we're consumed with each other's sin. It's why we love to gossip. <laughs> it's why we love it when someone big falls because then we don't have to think about ourselves. It's why in a marriage we distance ourselves one from the other and we make their sin the issue. When in fact the cross tells us, no, the sin is both of you. Do you hear what Genesis 4-7 says? 
God came to Cain right in the midst of, right before he killed his brother, and, 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 G, and, and God warns him, he said, Brother, sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to have you. And he was like, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And sin had him. He killed his brother with a rock. Paul said in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. There's no, gradu- there's no graduate program. We're all sinners. Equally condemned in our sin. But we're unwilling to do the hard work of repentance because Jeremiah 17.9 is so right. It tells us our hearts are deceitful above all things. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and beyond cure. I love what Paul says in Romans 7, man. He says, look, the very thing I want to do, I find that I don't do. But I end up doing the very thing I didn't want to do. You ever had a day like that? Ever had a life like that? If you're a Christian, that is you. And it's me. It's your pastor. It's Chris too. It's Rick. It's all of us. We want to do so great, and yet we don't. Why? Because Jesus tells us in this passage, Church, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You need more than resolve. You need Jesus. I've sat with so many people, whether I've been asked to confront them, or whether or not a spouse pulls them into my office, and it's obvious this person is not willing to look at their own sin. And there's nothing more dangerous than a person who is unwilling to look at their own sin. We have to understand that we are the ones that Jesus had to die for. But secondly, change comes when you believe Jesus drank all of the cup of God's wrath. Change comes when you believe that Jesus... Drank the cup of God's wrath. I don't know if you saw the story about Hassan Edmonds, Army National Guard specialist, shows up at uh, Chicago Midway International Airport Wednesday night, and he's arrested. And the reason he's arrested is because he was on his way to Egypt to join ISIS or ISIL. Um, and that it, it, it's fascinating to me. I, you, you know, there there um, many European youth are, are um, going to Turkey to join ISIS, and and it, it fascinated fascinated me this week so much that I did a little study to to see who is thinking through why, what's the motivation, and I came across an article in the International Business Times, um, and they interviewed John Horgan, who is a psychologist and professor at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell's. Center for Terrorism and Security Studies. That's a mouthful. Uh, so he must know what he's talking about. He's a professor there. Um, and, and this is what he said. He, in terms of what motivates someone to join ISIS, um, this is what he said. He said, some want to belong to something special. They want to find something meaningful for their life. Some are thrill-seeking. And then he said this, some are seeking redemption. If you know anything, just a cursory study of um, Islamic extremism, you understand that it's equal parts political and equal parts um, religious. 
It's not religious and it's not political. It's both. That's the major distinction of Islam, and it's the major distinction of extreme Islam or extremist Islam. And so what we see is that ISIS is giving people a very tangible, doable um, way or method to be a faithful person. It's giving them a tangible way. Just declare jihad against the infidels. We're the righteous. They're the infidels. Kill a bunch of them and God will accept you. Now, before you get too judgmental on that, you need to understand that this is exactly where the disciples are and exactly where you and I live too. You see, the attractive thing about religion is that it holds out the possibility of being acceptable to God through what we do or don't do. Do this and God will love you. Don't do that, God won't, you know. If you do that, God's not going to love you. Okay, well, i got to do this. And if I start doing that, I sure can't tell anybody. Do you see it? Do you understand why what I did this morning and what Chris and I do often in confessing our own sin before you A religious person cannot do that and will not do that, and that is why we don't hear it in our sermons, because there's no power to do that. Religion doesn't give you power to be honest about your sin, but what it does give you the power to do is to be resolved to do better. That's where the disciples were. We will not betray you. They all, we will not betray you. Oh, everybody else, but we won't deny you. Peter was even willing to take a sword out and cut the ear off of one of the um, soldiers, and he wanted to cut the dude's head off. He just wasn't good with a sword. I mean, I'm willing to kill for you, Jesus, but he wasn't willing to die to himself. He was willing to do great things. I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to... And yet he wasn't willing to lay himself before the cross and say, you're right, I'm going to deny you because I'm insecure and I'm really following you hoping that you're going to do some good to my reputation. Hoping that your kingdom's going to come and I'm going to sit on a throne with you and everybody's going to serve us. These guys didn't yet understand the gospel and neither do we. Are you resting in the cross and all the sufficiency of Jesus' work on the cross to completely pay for your sin? Then you're being honest about your sin. When your spouse, when your friend, when you're whatever it is, when you're exposed, you're willing to say, "I am the man." You see, pride and shame resist change, and yet it's because of pride and shame that we will not go into honest and transparent living. Think about this for a a minute. Pride and shame are like twin brothers. And and here's the difference. Shame looks at you and says, or excuse me, yeah, shame looks at your sin and says, look at what you did or what you failed to do. Do you see how pathetic you are? That's what shame does. Do you see how pathetic you are? This is what it whispers in your ear. Man, you were at church the other day raising your hands in worship. You know, you were at Bible study sharing all the answers and look at you. You're on that site again. Look at you. You're taking money for your... You're you're shaving off the top. You're being... Whatever it is. Look at you. Look at you. 
See, and you feel like an imposter. Anybody ever felt like an imposter? That's how I've lived much of my Christian life. Because shame has ruled me and it's been so deceptive that I'm, I'm scared to death for people to find out who I really am. Man, if I'm that jacked up, imagine how you guys are. Shame and pride are brothers. They're twin brothers. And what shame does is it says, get it together. you got to do better. you got to do better. Okay, I'll do better. I'll do better. I'll do better. I promise I'll do better. And do you see how that holds us back from going to the cross empty-handed? Because what it does is it turns us in on ourselves. And all we were consumed with our sin and doing better. Sin and doing better. Religious performance not on God and our neighbor. We're doing image management. And this seems like the way to do the Christian life. The worse I feel about myself, the better I am to God. But listen, these guys resolve to do good... And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to let you see how bad you are. If, if the Christian life worked like that, sin, I resolve to do better, I resolve to do better, I resolve to do better, then Jesus would have said, wonderful, you've arrived. But he doesn't do it, he just shakes his head and says, it's time to go to the cross. Because of you, because of me. You see, the cross is power to defeat sin The cross is God's power to defeat sin in that it deals completely and sufficiently with our sin by removing shame, thus rendering pride useless. Let me say that again. The cross is God's power to defeat sin in that it deals completely and sufficiently with our sin by removing shame, thus rendering pride useless. When shame is removed, there's no need to play games. If you know that when you go to God, He's not going to listen to you and say, Get it together. Come on, you call yourself a Christian? He's going to say, Son, daughter, that's why I sent my son. I sent my son to pour out the cup of my wrath on his head. You see, Jesus prays in the garden. He says, Father, may this cup pass from me, but not as I will, as you will. What is this cup that he's talking about? Go to Jeremiah 25, 15. I think we've got it in print above me. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all nations to who I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. The cup of God is the cup of His wrath that He pours out on the nations that are not covered with the blood of Jesus. And He pours out on the people that are not covered with the blood of Jesus. But those that are covered with the blood of Jesus are covered. Why? Because the cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and not you. It was Jesus in your place. And so God has no more wrath to pour out on us. He's already done it. Yes, we do deserve it. Jesus didn't deserve it, but He got what we deserve. 
so that we now get what he deserves, namely love and acceptance and reconciliation and peace with God. Dear friends, that's the gospel. And that gives you power to look at your sin because God knows your heart. He knows it better than you. And He wants to expose your sin so that Jesus might grow large as you see the wrath of God being poured out upon Him and you say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him and by His wounds we are healed. This is power for it removes shame and ushers God's forgiveness and love into our hearts. Shame distances us from God. The cross ushers us into fellowship and intimacy with God. Do you feel distant from God? It's because the cross is not big enough, but your sin is in your heart right now. Shame. What are the shameful parts of your life? Do you know what what we're conditioned to do in our human condition? We're conditioned to avoid those areas of our lives that we are most ashamed of. We are conditioned to run from them, to not think of them, to even suppress the memory of them. Unbelievable. That's a whole other sermon and a whole other talk. How in the world do those that have been sexually abused suppress that memory? Because they're human. And they can't bear the thought of feeling that shame that they felt in the midst of being sexually assaulted. Unbelievable. But friends, that's the kind of stuff that the cross gives us the power to go into and get healing. To remove the shame. I love the work of Dan Allender. If you're not familiar with it, you really need to become familiar with it. Write his name down. Dan Allender, A-L-L-E-N-D-E-R. He's a Ph.D. Christian counselor uh, that's also the head of uh, a seminary out west. Uh, He's written many books, and he's done a lot of work on shame and a lot of work on sexual abuse. Um, but he, the last several years, he's gotten big into um, the importance of us as Christians to, to write our story, to know our story, so that we can take the cross and the gospel and go back and infuse it into those, those areas that are plaguing us now and paralyzing us now as human beings. And, and, and this is what he wrote. Um, uh, he's talking about writing your story, which I would encourage everybody in here to do. Uh, write your story, and this is what he says. Linger longer than you prefer in those moments where you felt shame. Now that's the kind of stuff we kind of don't even write down. He says linger longer there. Shame is one of evil's most effective weapons to silence us and shut us down. It's where Satan divides our heart most effectively from God, others, and even our own self. Especially look at your sexual history, even as a younger child, and how the dark prince was thieving, killing, and destroying your integrity and joy as a man or woman. Look as well at what you know in your heart you don't really want to remember. It's often as simple as this. 
What is easy to dismiss or pass over or rewrite in your story? Make look better than it really is. Take pen and paper or computer and write out the story as if it were fiction. This allows us to see in black and white the reality of our life that we are apt to skirt over as if the past had no impact. Friends, the past has all impact if you haven't dealt with it in the power of Jesus. But Christianity doesn't work by looking at your story and resolving to do better. Christianity works by looking at your story, looking at those points of shame, and saying, I'm no longer going to be defined by that. Why? Because Jesus sat under the cup of God's wrath to free me from guilt from all of that junk. So I'm going to look at it, I'm going to bring it to the light so that it might be diffused. I'm going to announce it to the world because Jesus is the one who absorbs my shame. Dear friends, what are those shameful areas of your life? You say, Richard, I feel like I've been in a counseling office this morning on the couch just focusing on me. Well, here's the third point. Change comes that we might live a cross-centered life. And I'm going to add to this so that we can be some good to God and others. The disciples in this story were not ready to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The disciples in this story weren't ready to take on the responsibility of preaching the gospel and starting the gospel movement in the church that would change the world. If Jesus hadn't done this, if Jesus hadn't left his disciples fully aware that they betrayed him, they would have been no good and we probably wouldn't know the gospel today because in their pride they just would have gone and preach the law or some little twerk of Pharisaism or something. But do you see what Jesus does here? In the most critical moment in church history, he exposes them to themselves as sinners. He leaves them, and then what does he do? He comes back. Do you see how he's preparing them to do ministry to change the world? They see themselves as sinners. Oh my, we're the ones that left Jesus and he's been crucified. We have killed Christianity. (laughs) We've blown it like nobody in the history of the world has blown it. We couldn't even stay awake and watch and tell him when the guards were coming, hey, hey Jesus, they're coming because we were asleep. We We ruined Christianity. And in the height of that realization, guess what? Jesus shows back up. And do you remember what happened when they're out fishing and Peter sees him on the shore? He doesn't go, oh, dude, there's Jesus. Get down. He says, there's Jesus. When his eyes were open, there's Jesus. He throws his cloak off. He jumps in the water like a, like a fool. And he swims to the shore. And you can only imagine he grabs him. He says, Jesus, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. I see what you were doing. 
<laughs> you allowed me to see myself as scum that I might see you as everything. You allowed me to see the reality of my sin that I might see the reality of your forgiveness. You are the Messiah. You are the one who, you are the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. It's your blood, not the blood of bulls and goats and pigeons and turtle doves that, that cleanses me. It's your blood. And as it flowed from that cross, you cleansed all my sin. You cleansed all my shame. Oh, Jesus, thank you. We will now die for you. And they did. <laughs> Dear friends, the reason that we've got to do hard work for our sin is so that we can love. The reason we've got to abandon this whole religious motif and this religious paradigm of resolving to do better as opposed to resolving to make much of, much of Jesus and His work for us is so we can give our lives to other people. The reason that I need to go to counseling is so that it is not so that I can sleep better at night, but that so that I can love my wife more fully. It's not about me, it's about her, it's about God and His glory and what He wants to do in our lives. That's why we need to repent, that's why we need to change, so that the world might feel our repentance. And we're not all consumed about us and our sin. No, sin the cross. You're forgiven. Your shame is gone. Now to declare that Jesus can do the same for the world. Go to the poor. Go to the sick. Go to the world. Go to your spouse. Go to your family. Go to your children. Go to your... Go! Now you have the power because of the cross to love somebody, to die to yourself, and to give yourself away. Oh, church, may we allow the cross to become the power that absorbs our shame so that we might become an army of people that love the world. And we might get busy doing what we've been called to do, to live a lifestyle of repentance that we might love God and our neighbor. May God grant us the grace to do just that. Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you set your face toward the cross, toward Jerusalem, and nothing would hold you back, not even the betrayal of your best friends, because you came to die for them, as you have come to die for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you absorb my shame. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that that power is available to everybody in this room, and I pray that you would do work, O oh God. And that you would change lives, that you would bring people to Jesus this morning. As they have heard the gospel, may they discern the gospel in their hearts and through their spiritual eyes. Would you grant many in this room spiritual life? Oh, Father, would you grant us repentance unto life? Would you expose us, O oh God, that we might display you in all your sufficiency to deal with sinners like us and sinners like our neighbors? Oh God, make us a church that is determined to make much of Jesus and little about ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.